This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think of meditation as sort of like folding laundry or washing dishes. It's what we do to keep clean. It's what we do to catch up with ourselves. Our thoughts can kind of finish and fold up and get put away. And then the mind is clean for a day's work. Hey, thanks for listening to We're Momming Today. If you're listening on a smart speaker or website, make sure to find me, Lauren Simonetti, on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And don't forget to leave me a review. Momming today with renowned author and therapist Anadea Judith, a legend in psychological and spiritual circles. A woman has truly expanded the idea of energy healing, what that means for us, our families. And uh, Anadea, I am honored to speak with you because you are the example of practicing yoga on and off the mat, of truly making it a part of one's life. Um, and Thank you. I mean, you just got back from Germany and the Netherlands because you're constantly traveling the world to teach and, and expand what, what you've learned. Um, what's it like <laughs> to be in the huh. position you're in now? Well, you know, I've taught in 20 different countries all over the world. And what I find is the problems that people have, the concerns that they have are the same no matter where I go. And what are those concerns? Well, they can be concerns for their children, concerns for the future, concerns for making enough money, their health, their love life. You know, it's all the same thing, feeling insecure. What could I do? How can I improve myself? You know, we're all human. We're more alike than we are different. You write about and you speak of the chakra system um, and, and how different chakras relate to different parts of our life, different parts of our being. How would you explain that to a person who has no idea what we're talking about? Well, the word chakra, you know, comes from the yoga tradition. It means wheel or energy center. But you could talk about all of this stuff and never even use the word chakra. You could take a, you could talk about someone having some, you know, relationship issues or some communication issues or some, you know, financial struggles. These are all ways that we talk about the chakras as representing major areas of human life. And it's really just a context in which you can teach about these things. And so I help people with transformation in these very important areas of our lives that go all the way from our practical everyday concerns to our spiritual connection. And just quickly, the first chakra is um, your the first ability to root yourself. Go ahead. Yes, the first chakra at the base of the spine is the element earth. So it's representing everything that's practical, that has to do with the body, that has to do with your home, making money, you know, the physical world. The second chakra is the element water, and it's about 
being in the flow. It connects with our emotions and our sexuality. The third chakra is the element fire. It's in the solar plexus. It's our power, our self-esteem, our ability to get things done. The fourth chakra in the heart is about love and relationship and connection. The fifth chakra in the throat is logically enough about communication. The sixth chakra, often called the third eye, is about our intuition, our memory, our ability to visualize and imagine. And the seventh chakra is our connection to in higher intelligence or our higher self or our deep wisdom. Um, it's really about intelligence and spiritual connection. And these chakras are are part of childhood development, believe it or not. And in reading one of your many books, Eastern Body, Western Mind, which is not a book about raising children at all, but you bring your experiences as a mother of four children um, and as a teacher and a, as a healer into how we can use chakras development to help raise and relate to our children. Yes. When I, you know, in, in my training as a therapist, of course, I studied childhood development. Every therapist does. And of course, when I work with clients, you know, we work with things that happened in their childhood that shut them down or influenced them in some way. And that inspired me to write about, you know, how to guide parents into understanding what developmental stages a child was going through. And from a chakra perspective, they are, you know, in the first chakra, they're getting a sense of their safety in the world. Will my survival needs be provided? Do I get fed when I'm hungry? Do my diapers get changed? Do I get held and touched? These are very basic things that a child needs in their first year of life. In the second chakra, it's really about their emotional connection. A child can only communicate emotionally when they're at this age. This is like six months, uh, moving on up towards 18 months. And, you know, when something's wrong, they can't say, mommy, the milk is too hot or the diaper pin is poking me. They can only go, wah. And so if their emotions are communicated and responded to, then they get a healthy sense of their, what we call emotional literacy, meaning they can understand what they're feeling. As a child comes into what we now call the terrible twos, where they're going me and mine and gimme and no, and they're asserting themselves, that's when they're starting to come into their power and develop their individual will. And of course, this is a tricky time for parents. Any parent knows this because the child wants to do everything and knows very little about the world. And so the parents have to say, no, you can't play in the street. No, you can't eat all the ice cream. No, you can't hit your sister. And so the child has to learn impulse control and learn when to act and when not to. And how this goes has a lot to do with that child's sense of power and capability later in life. If the parents are too strict, they can shut down that power. And then the impulses barely arise. If the parents are too lenient, that child doesn't know limits and doesn't you know, have respect for other people. And pretty soon the law enforcement will do that for them. So it's a very tricky time to help develop a will in the child that is also in harmony with other people. And then that takes us into the fourth chakra, which is our social chakra. This opens up as we start playing with other kids our own age and we go to school and everything is about relationships and the child is concerned with, will I be liked? 
you know, will I have friends? Will people approve of me? And the child uses their impulse control to begin shaping themselves for, you know, what's going to win them favor. And that can include the parents saying, you know, I'll only love you when you act like this instead of doing that. And what happens in school and boys getting teased for crying and, you know, all the social um, ways that we're told to behave in order to be popular, to be approved. All these things get developed in this stage. In the fifth chakra, age seven to 12, a child is communicating, they're reading, they're writing, they're watching films, they're learning, they're these days on Facebook. <laughs> um, a lot of communication going through that develops intelligence. And at this stage, it's really important to have long, deep conversations with your child. When they ask questions, take time to answer and ask questions of them. What do you think about this? What are you feeling? What are you learning? What, what does that make you do? And let them really learn to communicate. That connects their mind and body. The sixth and seventh chakras, um, they open up more in adolescence. And the seventh chakra as a child is growing up and leaving home and starting over in their own new life and making their own worldview. And so by understanding each of these crucial stages, we can give a child more what they need to support them in growing up with health in these crucial areas. You could say healthy chakras, but it's really what represents those areas. What do you say to, to people who might dismiss what you're talking about as, you know, new age nonsense or, you know, just just it's too modern, too spiritual for them? Well, I think if you study childhood development, you see whether you call it something connected with chakras or anything else, you see that these developmental stages are mapped across all the developmental theorists, you know, that a child is developing their sense of safety. Eric Erickson, a famous developmental psychologist, talked about that as the first issue in life. I'm just giving it a name using the template of the chakras. What what yeah. uh, inspired you to do that, to, to think of our developmental stages, our, our, our well-being, our life forces as a chakra system. How did you put that together? Well, I had known about the chakra system since 1975 when I first began my studies of yoga and reading a lot of metaphysics and things. And then, of course, I was in graduate school and learning developmental psychology. And my understanding of the chakras went, oh, wow, this reflects the, you know, all the things that developmental theorists are saying. It's just I mapped it together. And I also saw it coming through all my clients in the issues that came up, the people who had power issues. I could trace that back to, you know, what happened when they were two and three years old mm -hmm. and how power was modeled in their family. The people who had trouble you know, living in their body and instead were living up in their head, often had birth difficulties or difficulty bonding with their mother or they were adopted. So I found how these issues from childhood matched the issues that were showing up in my clients when they came to me to work and improve themselves. And you can make the argument that it doesn't only affect them um, emotionally, it, it affects them physically because you can probably tell just looking at someone by the way they position their bodies, they slouch, they stand up straight, they walk with confidence or not, um, what that says about how they were raised or certain things that happened to them in their formative stages. 
Absolutely. I believe that the body actually shapes itself around the energetic patterns. So if someone doesn't get enough love, for example, they tend to have a bit of a collapsed chest. The shoulders round forward, the chest is kind of caved in, simply because there's not enough energy there. Um, what we see, I often call it the bully belly in, in, you know, in middle management, um, you know, where right around the third chakra, people are kind of have a pouch. And that is, you know, an excess of energy in the third chakra. So we see that people will have tight shoulders, and they'll get sore throats, that's a fifth chakra issue. And so again, it's just using the chakras as a context for reflecting the important areas of human life. Hold that thought. More momming after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's continue the conversation. There's so many instances. I'm, I'm, I have your book in front of me of pages that I folded as examples of how I have been, um, I, I guess you can say a bad parent, or I haven't noticed certain things that I should have noticed or, or things that I'm saying or doing that I shouldn't have because I never thought of them through the lens with which you describe. Um but it also made made me overly question what I do as a parent and how I raise my children. I, I think there's a fine line. There between, is a fine line. Between, and yeah. I know from having raised four children that, you know, even with my understanding as a therapist, I made mistakes. There are times I wasn't as available or didn't say the right thing or, you know, was balancing home and career. And the thing is, life is long. If you can understand those things, then you have time to perhaps make up for them, or at least as they're adults, talk to them about it and say, gee, I'm really sorry. I was working two jobs right then, and I wasn't there when you came home and needed to talk to me about something that happened at school. At least that goes a long way toward their healing. Did you notice any differences as you got deeper in your studies with the way you were raising your children? I, can you make the argument that your third child is better off than your first? Huh. Well, um, the older three were actually stepchildren, so okay. I didn't get them when they were really young, and I had one out of my own body. Um, what really did it for me was I was being a therapist all this time, and the horrible stories that my clients told me about what happened to them as children or the way they felt about it always reminded me, well, I want to make sure I don't do that to my son. Mm -hmm. Right. But then do you think there are, I think all parents fear this, there's things you do that you don't realize you do or say that have lasting impacts? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My son told me a story of when you know, uh, we did his laundry and something red got you know mixed in with the white and his socks turned pink. And he said, Mom, you know, the kids are going to tease me if you make me do that. And I said, oh, it's nothing. Just this is the only pair of clean socks we have this morning. Just wear them. And he went to school and he got teased. And, you know, I just I shouldn't have overridden his his intentions there. But, you know, I'm just trying to get the kids together and get them out in the morning. Yeah. Um, how often do you physically practice yoga? 
Um, it depends on what I'm doing. I try to do a little bit at least every day and a longer practice two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm teaching, I'll do it more often. I've had phases where I've done long practice every day. You know, I'm a little older in my years now, mm -hmm. and I like meditation and sitting still as much as I like doing yoga. Meditation is very popular right now. Very, very popular. Um, what do you think is happening in society that is causing us to yearn for the quiet, for the reflective, for that space? Well, I think we are overstimulated. You know, our cell phones are texting and bringing up news and everything every minute. The phone is ringing. We open our email and we get, you know, little ads, pop-up ads. We're getting bombarded for something that wants to steal our attention, saying, look at me, look at me. When we meditate, the attention is pulled back from the outer world and returned to the source. I think of meditation as sort of like folding laundry or washing dishes. It's what we do to keep clean. It's what we do to catch up with ourselves. Our thoughts can kind of finish and fold up and get put away, and then the mind is clean for a day's work. Hmm. That's a good way to put it. So when I do do the laundry and empty the dishwasher, does that count as meditation? <laughs> It can, yes. Certainly washing <laughs> dishes is a kind of meditation. Yeah, it's it's true, though. Um, there, there's definitely something going on right now. I, I agree with the overstimulation. I wonder if it also has to do with, and there have been problems around the world for, for all of history. Um, it might seem a little bit more pronounced now, though. And people might be either knowing about it more because we have smartphones that tell us everything in real time, um, or it might actually be more pronounced. Well, I think it is more pronounced, and I think that we have more stimulation from more sources. I mean, the world has always had problems, but we didn't used to have cell phones, or we didn't used to have even, you know, newspapers took a long time to get to you. Um, and before the printed, the printing press, we didn't even have that. So I think the level of stimulation is a hundredfold, if not a thousandfold, more than what it used to be. Yeah. I guess this all ex explains the... You know, especially when you talk to younger people, I would say Gen Zers, it's all about yoga. You see new studios popping up all the time. It's all about meditation, apps for meditation, um, just creating space for things that we don't do anymore or that we should be doing because we're so used to outsourcing our life because of apps and because of our phone. Um, we're constantly inundated. It, it, I have young children. You've raised children, but it makes me worried about how my kids are going to experience technology and how it's going to ruin some of their experiences. And that's a big question these days. You know, as children get cell phones younger and younger, I see mothers walking down the street with a two-year-old in a, in a stroller and the two-year-old's on an iPad and the mother's on her phone. And Can we talk about that for a second? Let's talk about that because I, I try so hard not to give a device to my children, but sometimes you just have to. Because you need, you have this resource. It will make them be quiet when you need them to. Should we not use it? Well, I think we have to use it sparingly. I think that our children are growing up into a technological society, and that's a fact of life. You know, my, my son was on his computer a lot as a teenager, but it turns out he has now a very high-paid job as a, you know, computer software engineer, and he has a talent for that. And so I'm glad I didn't keep it from him totally because he, like I say, developed a brilliance around that. Um, but I think that if we give it to them too young, 
it is actually conditioning the brain and the eyes, the muscles in the eyes, instead of looking outward at the horizon, at trees, at, you know, the sunlight, they're looking at a screen. And I think we don't know yet what the effects are because we haven't had generations to study this. It hasn't been around that long. I will tell you this. When I give my kids a device, they become trance-like. They tune out the rest of the world. And when you take it away, they become violent. And if you study those patterns, and I've paid attention to it, if you study their reactions before, during, and after they've been on an iPad or something – it's, it's really troubling, I have to say. It's really troubling, which is why we limit it as best we can. But, of course, you know, I cave, and uh, that's the new candy, right? That's, that's the candy of the 21st century, electronics. Yes, they did a study with, you know, uh, 20-year-olds, and they took away their phone for five minutes and measured <laughs> their, you know, cortisol, their stress response in their body, and it shot way up. They took it away for 30 minutes, and it was over the top. They were beside themselves with anxiety. And we know that anxiety is a really growing problem among teenagers now and, and you know high school kids and even junior high. Okay, anxiety. I, I want to talk about that. Anxiety is another buzzword of this year. Um, I can't tell you how many young people I speak to that talk about being anxious, and they're so young, and I say, hey, how do you know what anxious is or means? And how are you feeling anxious? Not to belittle what they're saying. I just, I, when I was a teenager, I never understood that word. Um, Neither did I. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think anybody said it. Um, I see a- anxiety as having too much what I call charge or energy. You know, and charge is my word for like you can have an emotional charge on something. You can be excited. That's a charge. You can be overstimulated. That means you're charged up. And with this overstimulation, the children have too much charge. And it isn't biologically natural to make a six-year-old sit at a desk all day and make tiny little squiggles with a pencil. But that is what we do to children when we send them to first grade. And we make them sit still. So they have to sit on a tremendous amount of life force energy or charge. And then when they do that year after year, and also living in urban environments where they don't get to climb trees and play in the park, they don't get to discharge. And that energy instead gets bound into the body and becomes anxiety. Yeah, it's unbelievable. There was this, um, a story just the other day, actually, that uh, high schoolers feel better, you know, if the teacher bans the phone in class, if they can just hold it. It helps It helps relieve their stress if they can just hold their phone because they don't want to be parted with it for a long time. Anyway, it's crazy. Out of all the work and everything that you've been studying all these years, what has been the most powerful to you? My study of energy and how people block their own life force according to how they were raised and how that affects their physical health, their ability to function, their ability to have relationships, their ability to communicate, their ability to release all those things that got blocked in the body. And so the latest edge of my work has been, you know, on this concept that I call charge, um, where I say consciousness having a really genuine experience, and looking at how we block and unblock charge. And that is freeing a person up to become more alive, more aware, more connected, and um, healthier. Wow, it's unbelievable. Um, what does it feel like to be called a healer? 
You know, I don't think of myself as a healer, even though people call me that. And I do, you know, conduct profound healing sessions. I feel like I'm more a facilitator of a person's own healing process. And that within each and every person, there is something in each person that knows what it is to be whole and is trying to get there. So I'm a facilitator of that process. That is a very yogi thing to say. <laughs> um, I so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on this podcast. Um, I, I think a lot of what we said might go over a lot of people's heads. So I would make, if you could make a recommendation to somebody listening right now to to read something that you wrote or somebody else wrote to, to start off on this process of understanding our energy centers and our, our balance in life, our, our, our life force and our dharma, our, our passion, what what would that be? Well, the book you mentioned, Eastern Body, Western Mind, has been read by people all over the world, and they tell me over and over again, it changed their life or it's their Bible. So that's... I agree, by the way. I agree with that. And they find themselves in it, and it opens them up. Um, My most recent book, Charge in the Energy Body, is a little easier to read. It's a shorter book written for a popular audience. At least that helps you understand the life force and how it gets trapped and includes a lot of exercises of what you can do about it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you again. Have a beautiful day. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the listeners. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.